Our second scripture today comes from the second chapter of the book of Acts. And the Acts of the Apostle is actually the second book in what we think of as a two-volume work. You've got the Gospel of Luke and then the Acts of the Apostles, probably written by the same person. And in the Gospel of Luke, we hear Luke's community tell their experience of Jesus Christ. And then in the Acts of the Apostle, we hear that community tell their experience of the Spirit of Christ alive in them. And at the center of this two-volume work is resurrection and Pentecost. And this story, this glimpse of this community comes right after Pentecost. Listen up. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they owned everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ, among us. Please pray with me. Holy God, may you fill us with your word in this hour that we might go forth and embody your shelter and your nurture and your community to bless all the children of God. Amen. So as I get started, I need to warn you, I'm about to get all teleological on you. Now, to be clear, I did not say I'm going to get theological because I am wont to do that sometimes. But I'm about to get all teleological on you. There is a $5 word, if ever there was one. Teleological is a particular way of thinking about the world and how we live in it. Teleological is a word that describes one of the ways, just one, that we can order and shape our lives together. One of the ways that we can look at the world we live in, the challenges we face, and decide how we will live our lives today. Now, there there are a number of ways that we could order our lives together. We can order our lives by rules. Do this, don't do that. That offers some clarity. You know where you stand. But we also know that life is wild and woolly and you just can't come up with a rule for everything. We can order our lives by the values that we hold. We believe in this value, therefore we will make decisions and live our life to reflect that value. I believe in honesty and truth, therefore I will choose to do the most honest thing and then the next honest thing. A teleological approach invites us to order our lives based on our goals or the ends that we want to achieve. In Greek, the telos, the goal, the end, hence teleological. This is our goal, this is our end that we want to achieve, so how shall we live now to make it so? 
We want to end the historic and persistent power of racism in our country. How shall we live now to make that so? That's a teleological approach. So in this summer sermon series, as we turn to a list of what Presbyterians call the great ends of the church, we are engaging in teleological thinking. This is the end, the six ends that we want to achieve as the church. This is what we want to be in the name of Jesus. So how shall we live our life now in this moment and in the next to make it so? And today we're turning to the second great end of the church, the shelter and nurture and spiritual fellowship of the children of God. Our end, our goal, is that the church offer to the world, to the children of God, shelter and nurture and fellowship or community, or I might say our goal is that the church offer to the world, which is everybody, a place in the world. If that's our goal, our telos, we want to offer everyone a place in the world in the name of Jesus, then how shall we live our life now? How shall we live to make it so? And so we come to this morning's scripture, which is a story. Offers us a glimpse of how they lived that out. The story that they told of how they had experienced that together, and it's a beautiful glimpse. They were all together, all the time. They broke bread together, they prayed and they worshiped. They shared everything they had as anyone had need. They even sold what they had so that everybody had enough and day by day, more and more people gathered with them. It's a glimpse of the shelter and nurturing community that they created together. But she'd also notice that this beautiful glimpse comes to us out of a less than beautiful world of dislocation, disorientation, and loss. The world of the early church, the world all around them was this world of dislocation and disorientation. And you know, if we zoom out even further, we can really say that about the whole of Scripture. The whole of the Bible tells us of a world of dislocation, disorientation, and loss. Just think about it. The first story is the story of Adam and Eve being dislocated from the garden. Abraham and Sarah migrate from their home in the land of Ur to a far-off land promised but utterly unknown to them. Their descendants, the 12 tribes, ultimately find themselves displaced by famine and then enslaved in Egypt. And then they escape Egypt. They migrate again and wander in the wilderness for years and years and years. And even for the brief time that these tribes form a kingdom, or, or two kingdoms actually, they are but one or two tiny kingdoms among many kingdoms at a geographic, geographic crossroads where empire after empire sweeps through and conquers Eventually, the northern kingdom is conquered and the people are dispersed throughout the world. And the southern kingdom is conquered and the leaders and then most of the people are taken into exile into Babylon. The whole of scripture tells us stories of dislocation, displacement, and migration. And so in these stories, these people cling to the shelter and the nurture of God. Like in this morning's psalm. The people wander in a wasteland and God brings them to a city where they can settle. The people who are oppressed and brought low, they cry out, and God raises up the needy. This is true in this New Testament, New Testament text, too. The early Christian community lives in their world of dislocation and loss. The Jesus movement has lost Jesus. 
And in the Roman-occupied world of the first century Palestine, when the Gospels were written, the Jewish temple has been razed to the ground, all the familiar markers wiped away, and this tiny offshoot Jesus movement staggers out into the Gentile world. And so as we zoom back in on this moment in Acts, out of their world of dislocation, disorientation and loss, they are giving us a glimpse of the shelter, nurture, and community that they have formed and found together in those days just after resurrection, just after Pentecost. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were all together and owned everything in common. They sold their possessions as anyone had need so that everyone had enough. Day by day, they broke bread and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It's it's almost too good to be true. And here's the thing. I don't know if it happened exactly like that. It is almost too good to be true. And if it did happen for a moment, I don't know that it lasted very long. Now, don't get me wrong. There is some memory reflected here. Some powerful memory of a powerful experience, so powerful that it will be repeated again in chapter 4 of Acts. But then this beautiful model of life together disappears from the story. It disintegrates, really, into the disagreements and division of the various Christianities that emerged in those early days. But even so, even so, they kept telling this story. They clung to it. This this story, this glimpse, is part memory and part hope. Do you remember? Do you remember this is who we once were? Oh. And this is who we still hope to be. This story told again and again from their day all the way up to ours just now, right here, is in one sense teleological. This is who we hope to be, the shelter and nurture, the community, the place in the world that we hope to embody in Jesus Christ, in the risen Christ, one of the ends, the goals of their church and of ours. So let's notice, let's notice a few things about this place in the world that they remembered together and that they longed for. First, the place in the world that they describe here is primarily located in community in relationships of mutuality that affirm and sustain the humanity of all people. They break bread and eat together. Everyone has a place at the table. Everyone shares what they have. Everyone has enough. The place in the world described here is not confined to any one patch of land. It thrives and it grows and it expands in human relationship and in a deep and abiding sense of belonging. Second, This place in the world is explicitly about actual bodily shelter and nature. In the description of their life together, shelter and nature are not metaphor. They are real. We are talking about the actual sharing of actual food, an actual roof over people's heads, actual relief from poverty, and actual enough for everyone. Third, the shelter, nature, and community described here require 
the relinquishment and the sharing of resources. And here's where this beautiful little text gets scary. I remember um, back in Birmingham, we were talking about this text and looking at it at a Bible study after our Wednesday night supper. And as our pastor, Eugenia Gamble, read the story and we talked about it, one of the elders in the church, Wallace McCroy, raised his hand and he said, well, Eugenia, these people, they sound like a bunch of communists. And Eugenia said, well, they might not have used that word, Wallace, but they just might have been. This text says that those who have sell what they have and give to those who have not. Those with power and privilege let go of it, relinquish it like a reparation so that everyone will have enough. Fourth, the shelter-nurturing community described here is defined by human need. It's not defined or prescribed top-down by what the haves have and are willing to give or by what we think we can allocate. They hold all things in common and they share on the basis of who needs what. Everyone shares everything with everybody as anyone has need. And fifth, this experience of shelter, nurture, and community is expansive and contagious. There's something so winsome about what they're living, about how they're shaping their life together, that people want to join in with glad and grateful hearts. So, the task of any preacher is to look at what's going on in the biblical test, both the challenges and how God is at work, and then to think about where we might see that or need that in our world. This shelter, nurture, and spiritual community of the children of God. I thought about how we experience this here, of how this congregation honors and cares for its children, its seniors, of our experiences of the rest shelter, and I could talk about that for a while. Or I thought about how I have experienced shelter here in my bones. Jeff and I arrived here in 2005 when I started seminary in a denomination that said they would not ordain me. And we found here in you shelter, nurture, and spiritual community. Oh, I could talk about that. But I don't think that we can talk about shelter, nurture, and community on July 28, 2019, without talking about the dislocations of our day, without talking about the peoples who are on the move with no shelter, without talking about the radical inhospitality of our nation at this moment, in our moment. In our moment, in response to the mass dislocations of our day, our government is meeting dislocated, migrating peoples at our borders, separating children from their families, and then caging children and their families in detention camps, in overcrowded conditions that the government's own inspector general has described as unsafe, unsanitary, and dangerous. 
This has been going on for some years now under this administration, but now, now over the past few months, we've had a glimpse of what it looks like. The government's inspector general has released photos of the overcrowded conditions in a report that describes how children in these detention camps have no access to showers or soap, no change of clothes, and they've not been receiving hot meals. That's the government acknowledging what it's doing. A group of lawyers has visited with the children and talked with them, and they've attached to one of their court filings excerpts of the interviews with the children about their experience of detention. Here's some of what the children have said. One eight-year-old boy said, they took us away from our grandmother and now we are all alone. They have not given us to our mother. We have been here for a long time. I have to take care of my little sister. She is very sad because she misses our mother and grandmother very much. We sleep on a cement bench. There are two mats in the room, but the big kids sleep on the mats, so we have to sleep on the cement bench. A five-year-old said, I was caught with my father. The immigration agent separated me from my father right away. I was very frightened and scared. I cried. I've not seen my father again. I have a cold and cough for several days. I've not seen a doctor, and I've not been given any medicine. When asked to describe their living conditions, one girl said, we are in a metal cage with 20 other teenagers, with babies and young children. We have one mat we need to share with each other. It is very cold. We each got a Mylar blanket, but it is not enough to warm up. A 16-year-old said, we slept on mats on the floor and they gave us aluminum blankets. They took our baby's diapers, baby formula, and all of our belongings. Our clothes were still wet and we were very cold, so we got sick. I have been in the United States for six days and I have never been offered a shower or been able to brush my teeth. There is no soap and our clothes are dirty. They have never been washed. And because children have been separated from their families, often children are taking care of children whom they may not have known before. A 15-year-old girl described it like this. I started taking care of, and they've deleted the name of a five-year-old, in the icebox. That's what they call the place because they keep it so cold. I started taking care of this young child after they separated her from her father. I did not know either of them before that. She was very upset. The workers did nothing to try to comfort her. I tried to comfort her and she's been with me ever since. This child sleeps on a mat with me on the concrete floor. We spend all day, every day in that room. There are no activities, only crying. So we're here today talking about shelter, nurture, and the spiritual community of the children of God. We can't not talk about this. We can't not talk about children caged at the borders, and also not, not only those children, also, also the dreamers who've lived in our midst their whole lives and who now fear deportation, also the children, the children living across the country and right here in Marin County, living in fear of ice raids and of their families being broken apart. We can't not talk about them. 
So I want to invite you, if you want, to imagine one of these children, anyone that you've heard about, anyone that you've seen, and for a moment, I invite you to take their hand. Standing here, in our moment, we say that the second great end of the church is shelter, nurture, and spiritual community of the children of God. A place in the world nurtured in community. Relationships of mutuality that affirm and sustain the humanity of all people, real food, real shelter, the relinquishing of what we have so that everyone, every child has enough shelter and nurture that meet the human needs of all the children of God. How shall we live right here and right now to make that so in our moment and in our day? Now, I've been talking about this a good bit this summer. And I talked about this in a different sermon at 7th Avenue Presbyterian Church just a few weeks ago. It was actually a 4th of July sermon. And after church, people kept asking, so what can I do? Specifically, what can I do? And that, that's a fair question. So I took that feedback, and I have three suggestions. First, protest. In every way you can, in every space you can, with your whole voice and your whole self, protest. Tell these stories. And I know, I know that in our day, with so much to protest, it may seem like writing letters or posting these stories on Facebook or showing up in a crowd of thousands may feel like shouting into the wind. But just last week, just last week, the people of Puerto Rico brought down a corrupt governor by showing up in the streets. Persist in protest. Second, find organizations that are already doing this work and join in their work. We probably don't know enough to get started on this, and we don't have to all by ourselves. There are plenty of organizations, those working at the border and those working locally with immigrant peoples who are seeking shelter, nurturing, work, and education, and a meaningful life for their families. Here, locally, we have the Canal Alliance, and they're doing so much. You can just go on their website, and there are opportunities to work in their food banks, to volunteer in their ESL classes, and to support their work. And third, you can give, we can give of our resources. We can give our money to organizations working at the border, to organizations working with immigrant families and children here in Marin. I'm going to take the honorarium that you give me today, and I'm going to make a donation in that amount to the Canal Alliance. I invite you to go home and find an organization doing this work or some other work in support of the children of God and to give as they have need. But those are just three ideas that one person came up with with a very basic amount of study on the issue. I know you, and there is abundant creativity in this room. We can imagine so much more. Now, I realize that's a lot to think about. And it's a lot to do, so I should probably stop for now. 
But before I sit down, I need to make something very clear. When I've been saying that the church offers the children of God a place in the world, the place in the world that we offer is Jesus Christ. In all of the Bible stories of dislocation, disorientation, and loss, the whole point is that God is always with us in every circumstance, everywhere we go. God has never left us alone, and God never will. When the people were in slavery, God came and set them free. When the people were in exile, God came and brought them home. And when the people were most in need, God came to us in Jesus Christ. God's word, God's presence in our flesh, God's abundant, expansive love embodied in Jesus. And now, through the power of resurrection and Pentecost, by the power of the Spirit embodied in us, for the shelter and nurture of the world God loves. The second great end of the church is the shelter and nurture and spiritual community of the children of God. That is what we want to be in the name of Jesus. So, how shall we live our life now? In this moment and in the next to make it so. So friends, let's join our voices together as we um, think about that question and sing hymn number 306, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, verses 1 through 3.